an arc of electricity surged from it. The brush below the tower was incredibly dry and the fire spread with, with speed at which it would just been absolutely impossible to contain. My guest today is Catherine Blunt. Catherine is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She has written about utilities and renewable energy for the journal since 2018. Her latest book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. In the book, Catherine explores the decline of California's largest utility company that led to countless wildfires, including the one that destroyed the town of Paradise and the human cost of infrastructure failure. I recently sat down with Catherine. We talked about the Paradise Fire, a series of wildfires that killed more than 100 people and raised hundreds of thousands of acres of vineyard and forest. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it, and I've been looking forward to it since uh, we spoke and since I, I finished your book. Uh, really great job. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Okay. Folks, the name of the book is California Burning the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. Now, Catherine, I want to tell you right off the bat, I did not think I'd enjoy reading a book about a utility. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I, I hope that... Uh... Um, for anyone out there who might have some reservations, hopefully this will help cut through them a bit. <laughs> okay. So I read this book over the weekend, and um, I listened to some of your podcast interviews. Really great stuff. And, you know, I, I do remember when this was happening, and I think you were reporting on that for the journal at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, I, we spent much of 2019 focused almost exclusively on PG&E. Right. I worked with a couple of very talented colleagues on that work. Okay. So this is really a story of a utility, an aging utility that, I don't know, wasn't doing the right thing for a pretty long time. Regulation in California, uh, climate change, and an amazingly growing population over the last hundred years in certain areas. And it seemed like a confluence of events just literally went up in smoke. Uh, that's right. I mean, it's it's. Um, I often say uh, in talking about this story to people that need to have some understanding of a hundred years of history because the uh, component um, on a power line that that failed in 2018 and ultimately led to the campfire uh, that that component was a hundred years old. That transmission line was a hundred years old. Some of the earliest infrastructure in California, but then over the last 20 years in particular, you saw the convergence of a lot of different. Um, factors and risks right. that really do a lot to explain why the company is in such challenging circumstances now. Right. This was like, you know, really an accident waiting to happen. It was just a matter of how bad it was going to be and, and what and how, I don't know, how it could be prevented. But before we get into all those details, so let's go back to 2018 when this happened, right? It was 2018? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. The campfire ignited in November of 2018. Okay. It wasn't just a campfire. It was, it's called campfire, right? Because so, I was reading that in the book, and it was it was a, 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 a series of wildfires, and it killed more than 100 people and raised, I don't know, what was it, tens of hundreds of thousands of acres of vineyards and forests? So there's really kind of two major fire events for PG&E over the last um, decade or so. Uh, in 2017, in um, in October, there was a spate of wildfires that ignited largely because tree branches hit live wires. And so there was um, almost 20 of those fires that um, 
killed more than 20 people, destroyed tens of thousands of acres and single family homes and businesses. And then in 2018, in November, the campfire occurred when a hook on a century old transmission tower broke clean, dropped a live wire. And that was a single fire that grew to kill 84 people and destroy the town of Paradise in the Sierra foothills and several nearby towns. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning because there's really, you know, I I was looking at, I was reading this and just, you know, learning so much about this and about the utility industry and uh, all all sorts of um, regulation that was put in place and also climate change and where people are living and, and the need for power and all that. And there's really not one villain in this story. It's, it's several, no? That's correct. I mean, there's there's certainly not a, a none of this. Um, no single person is culpable for the extent of what happened. Um, there's been a number of people who have perhaps exacerbated the circumstances or made decisions that uh, didn't help <laughs> or potentially even, you know, made things worse. But, um, you know, there was a... Uh, there, there's a few people that you can point to, but the, I mean, your point stands, of course, there's, there's very few villains, so to speak. And also there's, there aren't that many heroes either. This is a, a tricky story in which pg and itself is the character. There are compelling people who come and go, but they, they um, th- this is about, a, this, yeah. <laughs> okay. So a hundred, I think you start back all the way to the 1880s or so. So you have Back in the day, when Edison comes out with electricity, and they and he mar- and he uh, licenses uh, generators and a whole bunch of other things, that these businessmen get together and say, "Okay, we want to string these things up in Northern California." And there's a lot of forests, right? Forests. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring electricity to that part of the country, and it's a business. It's a great business, right? You own the utility; it's mm-hmm. only a monopoly. And uh, at the time, they're stringing this up, and let's go to let's go to 1924 or so, or whatever bouts there. And what mm-hmm. what happens there is, the uh, these lines are brought across forests in in the middle of the boondocks, really, right? It's uh, sure, um, yeah, rural areas, uh-huh. rural areas, okay. And and uh, what holds these together? And just let me get this right, because this sounds like you know that old poem that you know, for lack of a shoe. A lack of a nail, the shoe was lost. For lack of the shoe, the horse was lost, and the rider, and the right, whole battle's right. lost. For all heard that in a while. Right, all that. This really comes down to a hook that you have here that you researched, or it was researched already uh, by the company. A hook that was made, I think, in 1924, that was just worn out over time. That basically breaks in half. The live wire falls, happens to be on trees. And the fire spreads so quickly that uh, I, I, I don't know how you describe it, but it's so quickly that it, it's just a matter of moments. It's it's traveling at enormous speeds. Take us from that part. From the point in which the fire ignited, or the early history of the early, okay, of the company? good. I, I realize it's ambiguous. Okay, so my fault. <laughs> Take us from the point of getting this one piece. I think it was 1920. And by the way, uh, you, you mentioned, which is really amazing, that they the they changed the manufacturing of this of this hook a few years later because of the problems. So take us back to 1924. They're buying these hooks, and the hooks are nothing more hooks to hold a wire, right? It's nothing more complicated right. than that. Okay, good. Right, right. So I think some historical context is important here. Yeah, I mean you're you're getting at it um, quite a bit, and um, you're lead up to the question. But of course, you know these. When you think about the early 1910s and 1920s, the companies that are building electric infrastructure are new. Um, you know, the uh, 
ability to transmit power over long distances is relatively new, still somewhat experimental. And these companies, of course, are doing a huge amount to promote economic prosperity, not just in California, but but elsewhere. But um, these are the earliest days of the industry. Um, you didn't even have you know full consolidation of some of these companies. You still had competition. Um, the idea of the natural monopoly is beginning to evolve during this time. But um, the only real competitor that PG&E ever had was a company called Great Western Power. Uh, that company was was trying to build a vast transmission system to harness the hydropower and the Sierra foothills and carry it all the way to San Francisco. So it was this company that built this particular transmission line, you know, circa 1920, um, bought a um, malleable cast iron hook, which was the material of the day uh, that they had to, to string up these these power lines, high voltage power lines. Um, they built this particular line down the Feather River Canyon, which is super remote and hard to get to, but they thought it was the most uh, economical option that they had at the time. And um, PG&E and Great Western ultimately merged in 1930, creating the Great Northern California Monopoly that we know today that is PG&E. But you know, with this, PG&E inherited this other transmission system that it had no role in building. And of course, over the you know many decades, some of the records and other um, you know, pieces of paper, documentation associated with this whole system, just, I mean, they simply got lost. It's hard to retain over the course of time. And yeah, of course, like over the years, um, the components available to build transmission lines got better and stronger. And meanwhile, this, this old um, power line supported by this very old hook hung in the wind for almost exactly a century, wearing down little by little with every windstorm and rainstorm and snowstorm until finally one day during a very strong windstorm, it broke in half and that live wire uh, fell against the tower. An arc of electricity surged from it. The brush below the tower was incredibly dry and the fire spread with with speed at which it would just been absolutely impossible to contain. Right. It was also, you, you mentioned that not only was it impossible to contain, it was possible to get to. It was so remote, uh, firefighters couldn't even get there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the fire station was on the other side of the canyon. This particular transmission tower was all, along this very remote access route called Camp Creek Road, which is where the name the campfire comes from. But you wouldn't have been able to get an engine up there even if you had one um, able to to make that ascent. And it was it was already too late. Okay. Within 15 minutes of the fire starting, it was already too late. Right. Okay, super. And you show a picture, I think, in the book of um, – was it in the book? I, I thought I saw it here. Um, yes of the fire, or maybe I saw it online somewhere, that right after, a few minutes after, or maybe an hour later, uh, there's a picture of the fire smoldering, uh, you know, from a from a distance. And uh, mm -hmm. it's starting off, but it, it's going, okay, now, now, it's in a remote area. You have this live wire. It's causing a fire. It's causing a huge fire. And that's because of climate change. It's much drier in California that year, or the previous year, I think there was a drought, right? Climate change and drought is a huge part of this story. So historically speaking, wildfire risk has been most acute in Southern California because it's traditionally been hotter and drier. But within the last decade or so, that's changed really substantially in Northern California. There have been several periods of really intense drought. Scientists say very conclusively that these periods of drought have been made worse by climate change. And as a result, tens of millions of trees have died, which have made the consequence of power line failure or the potential consequence 
even greater because that fire is the potential to spread much, much more quickly. Right. And there were, I don't know how many zillions of these towers held together by these hooks that they were all manufactured in 1924 and they all were subject to the same risk. It just happened to be this one. And it's amazing. All it took was one hook to break, to take something in the modern age and just cause an inferno and so much devastation in such a compact period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this transmission infrastructure in particular is in the remote reaches of the Sierra makes sense, right? because <laughs> yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, this was this is early infrastructure built to carry hydroelectric power. That was some of the earliest generation built in California. So in particular, these lines are older than some others you might find throughout the service territory. And it so happens that the Sierra foothills are very risky because they are forested, they are dry, and you've had a greater number of people move there in recent years, which also heightens the potential destructiveness of a fire that might result of a, of a faulty power line. Right. Uh, you know, or even, you know, I'm, I'm not equating it, but you, if you have people move to areas where they were, there were never huge population centers, you always had over periods of time lightning strike these areas and create mm -hmm. fires and, you know, burn up all the growth and and the forest would, you know, re be reborn. And we see so many cases of that. But now you have people the same way they're living in, you know, on shorelines <laughs> in the middle of hurricane paths, uh, you know, where, where people decide to live uh, have enormous repercussions on these kind of events. It's, it's like if you're in the path of this, something will happen. So I don't think anyone thought that through. Maybe, maybe they did. Maybe their insurance rates are through the roof. I don't know, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, insurance is definitely a huge challenge, not just in fire prone areas on the on the West Coast, but I mean, for all kinds of different reasons, especially as uh, severe events either become more likely or or even stronger and more destructive. Yeah, I right. mean, it has a huge bearing on on that. And then you're beginning to see some conversation. It's not particularly um, popular necessarily, but this sort of idea of like if you have a town in an area at high risk of fire and it is destroyed or parts of it are destroyed, to what extent should it be rebuilt? And that's a really tough question, especially in California, because you know some of the more population dense centers, such as San Francisco, that are at quite as high a risk of fire, it's extremely expensive. Right. You know? And so if you want to live in California, oftentimes people find themselves in these more remote areas. And uh, yeah, there's a great deal of risk that comes with that. Yeah, and I was just reading something the other morning about uh, in, in uh, Fort Myers with the hurricane and all, and people looking to rebuild, but those people uh, don't have means, so they can't rebuild in their houses. And the houses that withstood were those by more wealthier people who were able to take precautions and build up to code. And these mm -hmm. people feel left out that they can rebuild, but you should have no right to be living there if you don't have a structure that could support uh, you know, hurricane-style winds and 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 uh, and uh, huge amounts of water. You know, it's it's. I hear you, but let's be real. I mean, that's whether someone has a right to do anything is it's a fraught question, but it certainly presents a lot of challenges that we need to confront as a society. Mm. Well, also, I think insurance companies. You know, now it's so difficult to get flood insurance, and rightly so. You know, for the if you if you want to live in the on the on, the, on the shore, you want to live. In a remote area, you're gonna to have to pay the price because it's uh, you're putting yourselves in you're putting yourselves in a higher higher in, in harm's way, and uh, you know I, I just don't understand how people think that nothing will happen or you know let someone else pick up the risk. But all right, be that as it may, 
You have uh, a situation here where the fire spreads within hours. And uh, uh, the I think you have over here that in some of these places they were destroyed in the past. Uh, I'm sorry, no, forgive me. I didn't, let me retract that. So what happened here is you have people calling 911 and you record here a 911 uh, phone call. There's nothing that can be done. Could you just, I think it's the Heffern family? Heffern family? Yeah, this is um, really one of the more chilling moments um, that emerged after the fire. And it was a, it was a recording of a 911 call of three generations of women, grandmother, her daughter, and her granddaughter. And they were trapped uh, in their house as the flames approached and they tried to shelter in the bathtub. They were on the phone with authorities pleading for help and eventually the line goes silent. Mm. That's how quickly the fire was spreading. And actually that was that particular audio clip was played for members of the, the PGE board that later toured the destruction. And it was, you know, meant to underscore the severity of what happened. I mean, you don't I, I you can't unhear that when you've, you know, been given the chance to. Right. So after all said and done and the, and the terrible devastation and the lives lost, PG&E go out and they survey all of these hooks, right, which they replace, fix or whatever. And it only takes a few months or so. Yeah. I mean, after so after the 2018 campfire, the company's startled into action, send people out to look at every piece of equipment in areas at high risk of fire. They're really condensing years worth of work into you know six months or so, maybe a little bit longer. They find a lot of hazards. I mean, especially in the Sierra foothills with some of the you know remote old infrastructure that we were talking about earlier, but elsewhere throughout the system as well. Right. And it really demonstrated for them the extent to which a lot of efforts over the years had fallen short. And they had a lot of work to do. Yeah, but you know, you, you look at it; it just keeps compounding. You know, generation after generation. You're not talking about a company that's been in business 20 years. A company that went through so much transforma transformation in terms of mergers, who was responsible for this or that, and it's 100 and 135, 140 years old. And whoever thinks about these things until they happen. One of the more chilling um, realities within the utility industry, other industries as well, is that it often takes a disaster to reveal the extent of the problem because, you know, these, for example, you know, a hook isn't okay one day and not okay the next day. You know, it doesn't fail that quickly. If the, these are, if something's been neglected, the you know, the wear patterns or the failure modes that you see are the result of, you know, ignoring it for years. I mean, little decisions here and there that shift attention or shift inspection methods or the amount of time spent looking at anything, all of this accrues very slowly until failure ultimately happens. And um, that's a scary thing because, you know, at any given time within any given utility company, there could be some sort of risk like this that is slowly um, becoming more acute day by day, but we're talking about like a 20 to 30 year time period. So it's uh, it's kind of challenging to understand, but it is critical in understanding how this failure happened ultimately. Should this have been on PG&E's check, PG checklist of things to check and it wasn't checked or no one ever thought that it was an issue? It, it should have been on the list. No, but ultimately. it wasn't on the list, um, right? It wasn't on the list. They had a whole... That's what I was. I wasn't, wasn't getting to it. say that it wasn't on the list, but they didn't do enough to make sure that that list item was getting the attention that it needed. Um, they were generally aware that, of course, little pieces of hardware, such as the hook that we're talking about, have the potential to fail. There were some studies done on this hardware in the 80s because there were some concerns about failure. 
But ultimately what happened is it's pretty simple. There was a few periods of time, I think maybe 1995, 2005, you know, 2010, kind of different periods in the company's history in which they begin to, you know, for a while, t- transmission lines like this were inspected with, I think, three ground inspections a year in which you had inspectors walking beneath the, the line to try to get a good, um, just get a good assessment of how everything was looking. It would be flown once by helicopter. And then they would climb a portion of the towers every year. And the reason for that is so they can get a really close look at these little pieces of hardware. Ultimately, inspection requirements changed in which they were doing fewer inspections, they were doing them more quickly, and they weren't climbing the towers anymore. So they really didn't have a great means of looking at these little pieces of hardware. Like, they knew they existed, they knew risks, you know, they may pose some risk, but they didn't realize the extent of it and didn't get close enough to realize uh, the extent to which they were wearing out until one gave way in a really dramatic fashion. Wow, it's like these things, you know, was was any papers or any, 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 um, smoking gun uh, ever found that someone like, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of the, um, the, uh, the space shuttle 1986 with the O-ring. There were, there were calls by engineers saying the O-ring with sub, you know, low freezing will not, will cause an issue. And there were a lot of, um, there was one or two, I think, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but there was a lot of warnings about that that just went unheeded. Was that the same case with this? Not with the hook in particular. It wasn't as though there were engineers within the company that knew these hooks were about to wear out and kept sounding the alarm and got nowhere. Generally speaking, there were a lot of engineers who felt as though the transmission infrastructure in this region, broadly speaking, had risks that need to be addressed and they weren't doing enough to address those risks, especially as they faced some uh, pressure to cut costs coming from the top. So there wasn't really a smoking gun in which someone knew this was going to happen or had the potential to happen and that it happened anyway. This was just, you know, the company sort of collectively among certain employees knew they weren't doing enough to address a lot of different types of risks in this area and you know, nevertheless felt like they didn't ultimately have the resources to do so. So it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's not a smoking gun per se, but It's worth noting that the company was ultimately convicted on 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for each of the deaths resulting from this fire. And the basis for that is you have to prove the company was recklessly negligent. It knew there was risks and didn't do enough to address them. So let me ask you this. You've researched this. You know a lot about utilities. You know how companies run. You're a small person with all this. My question is this. Let's say this never happened. Do you think they would have stumbled upon this? Even if they checked the towers, would anybody ever thought... To and yet, you know how many zillions of engineers work for this company over the past century. Do you think anyone would have came up with this and said, you know what, let's check these hooks? Well, you know what's interesting is that in the weeks prior to the campfire, for the first time in years, and uh, a supervisor called for people to actually climb the towers. These towers had gone unclimbed for a long time. The company couldn't really figure out why someone made that decision. They just said like, oh, you know, this is really old infrastructure. It would probably behoove us to climb it. And it's a long line, right? It's a long transmission line with lots of towers. Some of it's along the valley floor. Some of it's in the Sierra foothills. Wait, can, so can, can, let me interrupt you. Working. Let me interrupt How many, just give me, give me the, because I was trying to visualize this in my brain. I don't know California. I don't know the forest. I don't know. How many are we talking about? 100, 50, 10? How many of these towers? Oh, um, thousands of towers. Okay. A- any line might have more than 100 towers, more than 200 towers. It depends on depends on the line. 
But there, I mean, there are thousands of towers throughout the oh, city. Right. So, so, so we're not talking possibly about, tens of thousands. We're not talking about one. And over. they're not all of the same. They're not all of the same vintage. But like the ones in the in the Sierra foothills are all pretty much old. <laughs> okay, so so if we if, um, if we narrowed it down, you and I, right? We're the inspectors. We're the supervisors, and we would say, you know what. You know, uh, Catherine, you're smart on this. What do you think about these? These were manufactured in 1924. Oh, we got to check them, right? But it's not like it's something that was on the top of our to-do list. It, it wasn't on the top of the to-do list for a long time. But, you know, as I was mentioning, for whatever reason, there was climbing work ordered on this tower. They started on the ones on the valley floor. They would have continued on to the ones in the Feather River Canyon. But, like, the timing, you can't make this up. The timing was just terrible. They were about to start it, and then one of them failed. So it was clearly, you know, I mean, too little, too late is wow. dramatic understatement. So that's coincidence. That's just, you know, events, you know. And then again, if if California didn't have a drought uh, that year or the year before, or someone, you know, trimmed the trees or the areas around them, who knows, it might not have been as bad as it was. It just seems like, mm-hmm. you know, the perfect storm. Everything just worked. Uh, That's right. You know, and, and it's, it's just, you know, it just keeps exponentially getting worse and worse, you know, the, the, the way it seems. Yeah. Yes. There was some within the company that felt that the uh, risk of this particular line failing was highest during the winter, mm. probably during a snow or a rainstorm in which, you know, the fire risk is much lower. But they really failed to anticipate or understand the fact that, you know, seasonal winds, which are strongest in California in, you know, October and November, uh, created real hazards because of how worn out the infrastructure had become. Isn't that amazing? All the things, you, you know, it's, you, we focus on A and it's D and E that take place. It's like there are only so much you can do, but wow, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something. Okay, so in California, I think, I, I don't know if this is all utilities, but you please explain this to me. Uh, if you and I have a utility in California and any damage caused through through any type of behavior of ours, even if we're doing the right thing, we're totally responsible mm-hmm. as a company for any type of damage and property loss and human loss? Yeah, I mean, maybe with a few caveats in terms of type of damage, but for the most part, yes. So the idea is, so the, this is not all utilities. This is somewhat unique to California, even though you're beginning to hear it discussed in some other Western states. But if you think about eminent domain, right? The government has the, if they want to, the government wants to build something that's in the public interest, has the right to condemn your land so long as you are justly compensated for that, right? Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is if the thing that's built to serve the public good somehow does damage to your property, you are um, also entitled to compensation. That's that's why it's, so the wonky term is inverse condemnation, I know. So for a while, this only applied to government-owned utilities, but in California, it was ultimately expanded to include the privately owned, publicly traded, big utilities, PG&E, Southern California Edison, San Diego, San Diego Gas and Electric. So, so it's this way. It's a state if, also. If the state owned it, they'd be just as liable, right? That's right. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, wow. managing fire risk is a very big deal for these utilities because if their power lines ignite deadly fires, that's, of course, a disaster in and of itself. But they're also liable for all the damages that result. Wow. Crazy. Crazy. So... I don't know. Owning a utility is like an open-ended liability. The state in recent years has had to take a number of measures to help with this so that it doesn't look as though the liability is completely unlimited. 
Um, obviously, the state has an interest in keeping these utilities financially healthy so that they continue to attract the necessary investment that they need in order to make the system safer. But yeah, utilities in California in particular carry a lot of risk if you're an investor. Whoa, that's, that's really good to know. Okay, so here's yeah. a question for you. I'm in New York and we have Con Edison. Mm -hmm. And when we have blackouts, which aren't often, thank God for that, and uh, I have, I don't know, $1,000 worth of meat in my freezer and it goes bad. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that you can't do anything about that, right? It just is what it is. I, I'm not asking you to, you know, I don't think you know every state, but I remember reading of people who lost, you know, thousands of dollars of medications that need to be refrigerated or mm -hmm. uh, foods or what have you, and there's no recourse. I just find that, you know, here in Cal in California, there, there, there is so much, the onus is on the company here, I, you know, in New York, it, it seems that when these things happen, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't know how many tens of, uh, how many millions of dollars of, of uh, product or uh, hardship is felt by people. I don't know, I don't know if we could sue or get that money back. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So if you're talking about Con Ed, what you're talking about are kind of accidental outages, so to speak. You know, there's some sort of equipment failure. It's relatively easy to address. Maybe the outage lasts for a few hours. But in, in California, what's been interesting is over the last few years, PG&E and to a lesser extent, the other utilities in the state have been proactively turning off the power when the winds pick up so that mm. if there's equipment failure during that time, um, you know, no power, no spark, right? They're trying to get ahead of it. And so with that, you have the utility making a deliberate choice to show off the power for some stretch of time. They've gotten shorter, but one of the worst periods of this occurred in October of 2019, in which some people were in the dark for several days, more than once wow. over the course of that month. So of course, you're going to incur major losses there. And there was a lot of debate about this as to whether the utility was in any way obligated to help with this. And for the most part, the answer is no. Yeah, wow. That's Which is crazy. interesting considering what we were just talking about with inverse condemnation. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, head you head you head you lose, tails you lose a little more. It's like uh I, I you know, I just wonder how these companies make I'm sure they do make money, but it be, it's becoming harder and harder to do so, especially uh, when you're dealing with aging infrastructure. You know, this was Calvin Coolidge Calvin Coolidge was president when these things were going up. It's amazing to think about. Yeah, right. it's just absolutely <laughs> staggering. Okay. Another thing for you that I just was not, that was bothering me. How mm. much, in your opinion, because you probably read a zillion documents dealing with utilities and every aspect of this, because this case was very public and there was a whole bunch of documents. I don't know. You must have, So many documents. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, how much do you think in terms of percentages? Well, let me rephrase that question because that's not fair. How much responsibility would you put on California and the regulation that created this type of environment to exist? Yeah, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's hard to quantify, right? I know, I mean, that's why, say, I'm sorry, I should have said you that. You can say definitively, I mean, without beyond a reasonable doubt that, of course, the regulator had a role to play in all of this. Um, so what's interesting to think about is, so we haven't talked about this at all, but pg has been through bankruptcy twice at this point. The first time was after the California energy crisis of 2001. Complicated situation. Suffice it to say, it results in the first bankruptcy of the company. The company emerges very intent on pleasing Wall Street, which creates certain problems internally. Hang on one thing, but one at thing the same on that. Time, at the same time, I'm sorry to interrupt, that was also Enron days. 
You know, there was a deregulation, was oh, yeah. deregulation of energy, and that was a free-for-all marketplace. And I remember California back in the day was having rolling blackouts throughout the That's day, right. right? In 2000, a friend of mine had uh, some factories in California producing garments, and he goes, I can't get my goods. I said, what are you talking about? It's like a third world country. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, so Enron and others manipulated this new power market in a way that um, no one expected. You know, supply threat or demand threatened to exceed supply, which is when you have the rolling blackouts. Um, utilities racked up a lot of debt, and PG&E was the one to seek bankruptcy. As PG&E is getting out of bankruptcy, kind of something else is happening in parallel. California starts setting some very ambitious renewable energy targets. And it is up to the regulatory body, in this case, the California Public Utilities Commission, to oversee the contracting of the new wind and solar resources. Those are the renewable. Um, let me just let me just make sure. Let me put a fine point on this for our, for our listeners. The renewable energy thing was California was way ahead of everyone else with getting wind mm -hmm. and and solar in place. But if one rec right. one recalls back in the in the day, in the early two thousands, it was extremely expensive, extremely expensive. To, mm -hmm. for wind yeah. and solar. The prices have come down dramatically, but when they were doing it, that was a huge, huge capital investment. It wasn't actually a capital investment. It was an expense. So expense, as a result okay. of deregulation, the Good. companies no longer had the same role in building power plants. Mm -hmm. So they were simply contracting with developers for that power, which added another layer of pressure, right? They're not making any money on this, it's just money out the door. So um, yes, because California was a very early mover on this, the utilities are signing these very expensive contracts for wind and solar because prices were so much higher at that time. And this adds to expense pressure over time, which we can certainly unpack. But in terms of the role of the regulator, if you worked within the California Public Utilities Commission, you wanted to be involved in overseeing those contracts. That was the place to be. That was like, had the glamour, you know, it had the um, kind of the forward-looking excitement. It, it had the headline. Of, it made, you made headlines with yeah. this. This was so cool that, wow, we are so ahead with renewable energy. Got it. I remember that clearly. That it was. Yeah, we were excited. Exactly. You know, I was excited looking, wow, a whole new world here. You know, we're going to have a different mm -hmm. source of energy. Well, I don't have to pay my, my bills anymore. It's, it's 2005 or 6 or 7. I remember it was around there, right? Earlier on. Uh, mm -hmm. just... Yeah, the first the first really ambitious target was set in 2005 and it ramped up from there. Right. So. Um, Great headline. Anyways. Great headline. Exciting. Yeah, that's the place to be. It's, that's, that's the fun place to be for you know the smart policy person whereas if you're in the safety division just didn't have as much cachet um it didn't have as many resources and those within the safety division were generally you know didn't have enough resources not enough manpower to really drill into not just pg&e but the other utilities in the state and the i mean the safety division had so much work to do and not enough people and not enough time and not enough money and so they just didn't have the means of running a like a meaningful inspection program or being able to really know for sure the extent to which the utilities were doing what they're supposed to do. So there wasn't a great deal of safety oversight or enforcement for quite a while. And it, you know, there was this um, auditors or um, third party consultants brought in to like look at this dynamic within the PUC and they found it was as simple as that. You know, safety really wasn't glamorous, whereas the policy side was and that's where most of the resources went. Wow, amazing, right? It comes, you know, you know what I find so chilling about this is that if I ever hear of something like this happening again, I would not be surprised. It seems like the table is set. We have such aging infrastructure in this country uh, where our, 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 our grids are God knows how old. 
and uh, nuclear energy, which is something that we should have, which works as clean. More people died from, from this fire than did from nuclear accidents, you know, in the United States. It's just, mm-hmm. it, but we, it's, it's our motion that gets the way, it gets in the way of making good policy decisions and the people want to be reelected and so on and so forth. But uh, I don't know, doesn't this put nuclear energy on the, um, I, keep, I keep using all these terms, front burner of, 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 of energy at this point? Shouldn't we be rethinking that? I, I don't see a connection there, to be honest. I mean, I think that we have real issues with where are we going to get our clean energy supplies? And that's kind of a different, you know, it's kind of a different conversation than like, how do we maintain the wires that transport power over distances? So right here, we're kind of talking about issues with overseeing these old pieces okay, of so, infrastructure. So, so let me rephrase the question then. We have an aging system, right? Let's use mm-hmm. let's use the, the PG&E's zillion, you know, towers, with all these hooks, because you know the next accident is going to happen from something we didn't expect, but we should have expected, right? So it's going to happen right. from the X factor of didn't anyone check the metal on the third rung should have been this? No, right? right. We need this. Okay, so it's going to happen from that. My, my not my point. I'm just thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. If the, sure. the problem is an aging a, a, an infrastructure that's over a hundred plus years old, that no matter mm-hmm. how much oversight, safety, regulation we put into it. It's bound to be, bound to be, just the way it's configured. We're putting, you know, electricity that can break off in the middle of a forest and getting, you know, surprised when hundreds of thousands of acres grow up and say we should have known. I don't know what we could have known, but okay. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't the conversation, and I'm not, I shouldn't be so presumptuous. I'm thinking when I read something like this, my first thought is, you know, still is, is why aren't we trying to, you know, mothball this over time, over time, and start moving forward. Because what we're doing here is we're fixing a used car. Eventually, if it's not A, it's going to be B. It's something's going to go wrong. Right. I want to just hear your right. thoughts on that. Sure. So, so what we're talking about here then would be bringing the sources of generation, whatever it might be, closer to the customer. So, you know, a lot of people point to the prospect of rooftop solar being able to help with this because the customer has the potential to generate the power themselves use it on site, right? Potentially over time, reducing the need for all these wires or, you know, building community solar installations, anything that brings it closer and eliminates the need for the wires. If you're talking about nuclear power, the only thing that you could really talk about there in that context would be like a small modular reactor, which is beginning to, there's a lot of conversation around this about cost feasibility, whether this is going to be part of the solution eventually. If we're talking about more big reactors, you still need big wires to transport that power over long distances because you're not going to get anyone to live next door to that plant, right? Like, I agree the nuclear industry is extremely safe. I also don't necessarily want to live next door to the plant. Right. right? I know there should be prisons for bad people. I just don't want to live near them. It's not in my backyard. Everyone's for that. I'm with you. Totally with you. Right. And so, I mean, like, so um, I think that the whole conversation about distributed energy, whatever it is, small nuke, rooftop solar, anything certainly has a, a role to play. But there, when you think about everything across the United States, there are some regions that really lend themselves to this and others that don't. So to some extent, we're always going to need some of that centralized Agre- infrastructure with but, big wires. But here we're talking about California, right? It's so a huge, mm-hmm. the landmass is, is humongous of California. You have amazing natural resources, trees, forests, now, forget about put people out. Maybe, maybe we throw them all out of the forest. We don't let them live there. Let's put that. But just the the damage to the environment, enormous, enormous. If we were starting today with an energy source, 
would this be the best idea we have? Stringing wires across areas where people can get to and in the face of wind and rain and all sorts of the elements and hope these things don't break off and spark tremendous fires? Oh, no. I mean, no, it's not the best idea. And I mean, you can look at it from that perspective, but it's like, here's what's in place. How quickly can some of this be phased out with the new technologies that we have? At what cost? You know, and like in the interim, as it's being, you know, um, certain lines or whatever are being phased out in favor of more distributed solutions. I mean, for as long as it takes to do that, this stuff has to be maintained. So, you know, I mean, it's it's not ideal at this at this juncture, given all the risks. Yeah, but look, look, but look, it look, look 15, 20 years from now, we're going to be, you know, if we don't do anything about this now, we're still going to be faced with the same issues. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if we don't do anything oh. about it now, we will still be faced with the same issues. Work is underway, right? Yeah, but these, these are complex systems that, oh. you know, it, it takes, it, it can't, it can't be transformed Overnight. within a day or a week yeah. or a year. Yeah. You know, this is, it's just, it's unfortunate, but, and, you know, it is true that like some of the, potential solutions also sort of get bogged down in the bureaucracy of the regulatory process and everything. It's just by nature, this industry moves very slowly. And it is scary because seemingly new risk modes are emerging very quickly. Yeah. You're, you're in California. You're based in California. I'm in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. So your boots on the ground there, you know, it's like, what is the mood? What do the, what do the people think of this? What, what are they, uh, you know, after this event happened and the potential yeah. for it to happen again, I'm so removed from it, literally on the other side of the country. And, you know, the only green things we see is Central Park. But, the, you know, <laughs> you, there, there is so much around uh, um, California. What are, what are the, you know, what's the conversation about? Oh, well, pg e has lost the trust of its customers almost completely. And it's going to take a very, very long time to regain that if it's even possible at this mm -hmm. point. And I wouldn't, I mean, people who understand the complexities of this story, there, there are, let me put it this way, there's a contingent of people who I think really understand the complexity of the story and that it's not all PG&E's fault. There's been, you know, the convergence of a lot of different risks, a lot of different players within the state of California bear culpability. But for the most part, most people simply see a company that has started a lot of really deadly fires yeah. over the last few years. Yeah, and that, that, and, yeah that's, that's when, I, when I picked up this book and I saw the full of, of, of Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, I, I and as as you you know, you you really balance. I want to tell you, it's really a balanced book. I wanted to hate them, but you know, I, I I don't hate them so much. After reading this, I understand, you know, what happened, uh, and 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 that's the problem with this. There's no real. I wish it was a smoking gun. I wish it was someone I really could hate and say, because it makes me feel better that it won't happen again. But it, it um, this right. is an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, and that's, it is, um. It's, it's the truth of the matter is that there's there's not a person to whom you can really assign blame for any of this. And it's it's one of the reasons why it's be kind of confusing to consider that this is a company now that's been twice convicted on charges of failing to maintain its infrastructure involuntary manslaughter after the campfire. We didn't even talk about the San Bruno explosion that happened in 2010. A big pipeline exploded mm -hmm. and they were ultimately convicted on uh, uh, charges of um failing to follow federal pipeline safety laws. So what, a dozen people or something died or something like that? Uh, uh, eight, eight people died. Eight people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, eight people died and the neighborhood was partially destroyed. It was it was really a disaster. And so um, <laughs> it's confusing to understand how in both cases the company itself faced the charges, not individual employees yeah. within the company. But, I mean, in both cases, what the evidence revealed was that 
there's a lot of people who knew something. Nobody knew everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like a, it's like it a puzzle. Sort of, Everyone has a little piece that, mm-hmm. you know. Everyone has a little piece yeah, of Yeah, and you put it mm-hmm. together, it's in, in hindsight, it's so obvious. But that's my, my whole point is that, you know, when, when it's during the current situation where nothing's, nothing's at risk or it seems to be, you see all the pieces there, but nobody's putting them together. I don't think you can put them together. You know, we, we take for granted turning on our light and getting electricity and all the things utilities do, which are just amazing, mm-hmm. right? Just, you know, what, 70 years ago, we didn't have any of this. You know, the, you know Tennessee Valley didn't have any electricity until, you know, right. LBJ came in, until it was the FDR and then LBJ. It, part of the country did not have anything. And this is in the lifetime of my parents and my grandparents for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. We, you know, mm-hmm. you don't get your internet working at, you know, top speed in 30 seconds, you're pissed off. So a lot, right. a lot is, you know, a lot is changing. We, a, lot of, a lot is taken for granted. And after the fact, it's like um, there's always something, you know, with such a highly regulated industry. And, and I don't have no investments in utilities, so I'm not showing, I'm just telling you right now. There's always going to be something. There was a regulation that should have been followed. There was something that mm-hmm. wasn't. You cannot do this 100%. It's impossible. Right, right. Yeah, and one thing that's, you know, we, we talk a lot about transmission risks because the campfire was so devastating and so dramatic to think about the hook that breaks. But really, the most of the fires PG&E has ignited over the course of years is when branches hit live wires. And you can do a lot to keep those trees away from the wires, but what happens if the strong winds pick up a branch from 50 yards away and it gets tangled in the wire? I don't know how you prevent against that other than to have settings that make it so that it immediately trips off or maybe the line's already off. And that's a reliability compromise, right? That means someone somewhere is without power. Right. So it's very difficult. Right, right. It trips it off and then you're pissed because, oh my gosh, I... I can't get on Zoom and I can't have my conference and this and that. And it, you know, right. look, once you get something, once we have something, we want it forever and we expect it to always work perfectly. And as mm-hmm. soon as it's taken away, even for a nanosecond, we freak. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that because it's not even just in California, we've seen so many reliability issues across the grid. I mean, I think most significantly, of course, uh, what happened in Texas uh, last year with the Texas freeze. Um, you know, millions without power for several days. This was a sort of a different set of issues than what we're seeing in California. But I mean, everywhere, I mean, I know that, you know, there's been higher than normal outages in Michigan as a result of certain storms. Um, clearly, some of the hurricane activity we've seen recently has been very significant in terms of power grid issues. And people are thinking about it in a way that they haven't because we're seeing more risks to have the ability to affect the health of this infrastructure that's only getting older by the day. Yeah, yeah, so while yeah. we once might have flipped on the light without thinking about it, Maybe we're thinking about it a little bit more now. Well, let's end on that. You know, Catherine really, I'm, I'm like I said in the start of this conversation, I picked up this book. I said, oh, book about utilities. How exciting. But as you read it, <laughs> you know, it's like, what the heck? It's 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 scary. It really is scary. Because uh, when I put the book down, I kept thinking, what's the next disaster waiting to happen? It's not going to be the hook. Right. It's not going to be the hook. It will be right. something else. And that's something it will be something it will be something yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. And well, thank you for your honesty. And I'm very glad I was able to change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, folks. <laughs> the name of the book is California Burning the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and what it means for America's power grid. Uh, Catherine, you did an amazing. First of all, God bless you for reading through zillions of pages of hearings, regulations and everything. I don't know how strong the coffee was, but you had a step. I just reading these boilerplate <laughs> things is just amazing. Just amazing. And this is what you cover, right? This is what you cover for the journal? 
uh, utilities. It is, yeah, I read about utilities. Um, but yeah, the, the document dies were deep. Wow, you were the exciting, <laughs> sure. you were the exciting person on campus. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Captain, it was a pleasure to talk so to you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.